Good morning. Another United Kingdom Prime Minister resigns. Who's next? Allies blame Iran for the drone attack against Ukraine. Biden sells more oil as energy and tech use record profits to buy back their own stocks. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday, October 21st, 2022. It's been a shambolic 24 hours in Westminster and 10 Downing Street, the epicenters of power in the United Kingdom. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, resigned. Some say she was sacked pushing and shoving between angry conservative members of parliament, another top resignation followed by a rehiring and then another resignation topped by the resignation of Prime Minister Liz Truss after 44 days, the shortest term for a prime minister in UK history. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning, I met the chairman of the 1922 committee Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Thank you. Trust became Prime Minister after Boris Johnson resigned under fire for lying about attending parties during COVID lockdown. She was chosen by the Conservative Party with no outside input, immediately cut taxes, forcing the pound into a freefall against other currencies. Now, Conservatives are busy with nominations for her replacement, and rumors abound that Bojo might be back. At the White House, President Joe Biden downplayed the political turmoil across the pond as he headed to a campaign appearance for Democratic Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman. He also said Democratic candidates are not shunning him, even as polls show Democrats might lose control of one or both houses of Congress. Biden also said he supports restrictions on abortion, the ones overturned by the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade. Well, that's for her to decide. But look, she was a good partner on Russia and Ukraine, and the British are going to solve their problems, and the, but she was a good partner. John Fetterman's going to appear with you today yeah. in Pennsylvania, but there haven't been that many candidates campaigning with you. Why are That's more? That's not true. There's been 15. Count, get count. Okay, and uh, are there going to be even more? Yeah. Yeah. Should there be any restrictions? Should there be any restrictions on abortion at all? Any restrictions on abortion yeah. at all? Uh, yes, there should be. What should they be? And Roe v. Wade. Read it, man. You'll get educated. No, I'm going to ask you. Meanwhile, the progressive member of the European Parliament from Ireland, Claire Daly, pushed back against calls to name Russia a state sponsor of terrorism for its invasion of Ukraine. She pointed her finger at the United States as the worst offender. State sponsor of terrorism is a term of US law. It doesn't exist in EU law. But a Zelensky advisor called for it in the Parliament magazine. And here we are again reporting for duty. And all it will do is make peace harder to achieve. Exactly, of course, what the extremists want. No peace, no off-ramps, 
all bridges burning and Ukraine a permanent abattoir in a suicidal holy crusade against Russia. So, if you want to start naming state sponsors of terrorism, let's do it. European sponsorship of Israeli terrorism in Palestine, Western sponsorship of Saudi terror in Yemen, ISIS, the product of French, American, British, Turkish and Gulf sponsorship in Syria and Iraq, decades of right-wing US-backed terrorism against the Cuban revolution, the Contras in Nicaragua, death squads in Guatemala, in El Salvador, remember Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, horror after horror, terror after terror, there's nothing constructive about the pot calling the kettle black. Would you ever cop on, start championing peace and enter the war which is patently in the interests of EU, Ukrainian and Russian citizens? Daly has been calling for de-escalation and diplomacy with Russia. She says the people of both nations are suffering a proxy war between NATO and Russia. It totally is a proxy war when the US and NATO have been the ones, for starters, destabilizing the region in the run-up to the war, provoking the situation and preventing peace since it started, and basically creating the climate where the Ukrainians are expected to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, because that's the only direction where it's going, this nonsense that, oh, Russia is being defeated. It may be a major headache for Russia. And some people might say, well, it serves them right. They shouldn't have done that in the first place. Well, okay, but think where that's leading you by saying that what you're you're actually saying is who you want to pay that price is ordinary people in Russia, ordinary people in Europe, and first and foremost, ordinary Ukrainians who are going to be the ones at the receiving end of that war in terms of bullets and tanks and all the rest, and increasingly ordinary Russians and people caught up in Crimea or wherever. Claire Daly is a member of the European Parliament representing Ireland. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg says the Western Alliance will deliver anti-drone air defense systems to Ukraine in coming days. Ukraine has been under attack by small but deadly so-called kamikaze drones targeting Ukraine's electric power grid. Although Iran denies the allegations, Stoltenberg says it's clear the drones were supplied by Iran. Every indication points uh, to Iran um, supplying Russia with uh, these drones. We call on uh, all nations, and including Iran, uh, to not support uh, Russia's illegal uh, war against uh, Ukraine. And of course, the horrific uh, attacks we have seen uh, by these drones just highlights the urgency of uh, stepping up support uh, for uh, Ukraine. We are, of course, monitoring closely what Iran are doing when it comes to also providing any support to uh, Russia. Uh, we call on Iran not to provide uh, neither drones nor missiles. Any supplies of missiles will also be in clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder told reporters Iranian military personnel are on the ground in Ukraine assisting the Russian military with drone operations. We do assess that Iranians have been on the ground in Ukraine to assist Russia with the drone operations there. In terms of what that means, obviously, again, we continue to see Iran be complicit in terms of exporting terror, not only in the Middle East region, but now also to Ukraine. You know, I think that speaks for itself. He added that Russia has turned to countries such as Iran and North Korea for additional ammunition and weapons because its weapons stockpiles, including precision-guided munitions, are depleting. 
In related news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday night accused Russia of preparing to blow up a hydropower plant in the Kherson region. A spokesperson added Russia was mining the Kakahovka dam and the transformers at the power plant. And as Russian attacks on Ukraine increased in recent days, the embattled country restricted power use for the first time yesterday. Ukraine's foreign ministry says more than 100 Iranian-made drones had slammed into power plants, sewage treatment plants, residential buildings, bridges, and other targets in urban areas in the past week. Meanwhile, in the United States, the peace group Roots Action has launched a campaign to convince President Biden to get NATO to cease its annual rehearsals for nuclear war. As part of the exercise, the United States flew B-52 long-range bombers from North Dakota for pretend bombing runs over Belgium, the North Sea, and the United Kingdom, and engaged in what NATO calls a range of realistic and simulated events which can be found in a conflict. Norman Solomon is co-founder of Roots Action. These are annual exercises, and the U.S. began them at the beginning of this week. They're going to last for about 14 days. Likewise, the Russians getting exercises underway. And they're really nuclear war games. They're exercises or rehearsals for nuclear war. We're told that not only does NATO have about 60 aircraft involved, including two B-52s flying in from North Dakota with strategic bombs, but the main emphasis is practicing how to use so-called tactical nuclear weapons in the case of NATO, which we're encouraged to believe are small, but some of them are bigger than the ones that decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's a further spiral uh, towards uh, nuclear conflagration, especially because of the timing now. I mean, why do it now? And when the head of NATO uh, was asked that, Stoltenberg few days ago, he said, oh, if we postponed or canceled, that would be a sign of weakness. And this is the sort of autopilot uh, towards a nuclear confrontation that's underway. What would happen if the radiation from a small nuclear blast crossed an international boundary? Would that be an attack on that country? Well, it depends on how you you look at it. It's certainly in moral and ethical terms an attack on the planet because Ionizing radiation is not going to respect lines on a map. It's a matter of momentum towards a spiral, towards a too-late-to-pull-back sort of a confrontation. I mean, this is a land-based war, a war in Europe that's the largest since World War II. NATO has expanded after violating a pledge when the Berlin Wall fell. Vladimir Putin is making completely reckless threats about use of nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine. And this is the kind of what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism underway in terms of a potential nuclear conflagration emanating from the conflict over Ukraine. Is this like that movie? I remember seeing it with the world obviously escalating towards war and the people just ignored it and went about their lives not even realizing until the bombs blasted. Are are we in that kind of situation like the day after? Unfortunately, there are a lot of similarities. And inside the government, there is a process underway that reminds me of something that Daniel Ellsberg has said. You know, Dan Ellsberg was a nuclear war planner before he released the Pentagon Papers. He has a long, deep experience. He's continued to study with real scholarship the history and current realities of nuclear weapons, postures, and so forth. 
And he tells of going to see Dr. Strangelove at a theater and walking out and saying to an acquaintance, that was a documentary. A lot of the mentalities are really at work. It's really essential that people organize. You know, that's why I've been involved at RootsAction.org. Nobody's doing anything. Why aren't people in the streets? Why aren't we screaming and yelling out the windows? You're right that the vast majority, almost the entire country is sleepwalking. And certainly the Biden administration, which could do things to de-escalate, could rejoin the ABM treaty that President George W. Bush pulled out of in 2002, could rejoin the INF, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, that Trump pulled out of in 2019. But instead, there's just been a lot of sort of macho saber rattling and we're not going to back down and so forth. I've been involved through RootsAction.org with the Diffuse Nuclear War Campaign, which we've been organizing with other groups. And we had close to 50 different congressional offices around the country picketed last Friday, demanding that members of Congress get real about this, acknowledge publicly the escalation of dangers towards nuclear war, and fight for specific steps to reduce those dangers. It's very tough to break the mentality that has the hold on Congress and the White House. Solomon adds the Ukraine war is an emergency, and that right now we're closer to a cataclysmic nuclear war than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And in Washington, President Biden says his decision to release another 15 million barrels of oil from the government's strategic petroleum reserve was not politically motivated. The decision comes days after Saudi Arabia and OPEC refused to increase production to tamp down on spiraling oil prices and a few weeks before crucial elections in the United States. Department of Energy released another 15 million barrels from the strategic petroleum reserve, extending our previously announced release through the month of December. Independent analysts have confirmed that drawdowns from the reserves so far have played a big role in bringing down oil prices, bringing them down. So we're going to continue to responsibly use that national asset. Right now, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is more than half full, with about 400 million barrels of oil. That's more than enough for any emergency drawdown. With my announcement today, we're going to continue to stabilize markets and decrease the prices at a time when the actions of other countries have caused such volatility. President Biden has been asking oil companies to hold down oil prices to moderate the worst inflation of 40 years. He demanded they invest profits in more oil production rather than using their gains to buy back their own stocks and increasing dividends to wealthy stockholders. Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts, William Laconic, tells the news the buybacks are a legalized form of insider trading that Biden once opposed. He asks, where is the president on the issue now? Buybacks are done. It's people who are in the know about when to time the buying and selling of, of shares. So I've been a critic of buybacks for a long time. Had an article in Harvard Business Review in uh, 2014 that got a lot of visibility, including from Joe Biden. Met with him a couple times in 2015, and he was, as vice president, an ardent uh, critic of stock buybacks and its connection to executive pay, since most executives pay is stock-based, and to get the stock price up, their pay goes up. He actually had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in September of 2016, which was very clear that bringing this stuff under control, the future of the economy depended on it. And also, when the uh, Republican tax cuts occurred in uh, December 
2017. Everybody on both sides knew that the money was going to be used for buyback. There was a big group of Senate Democrats led by Schumer, who was actually an ardent opponent of buyback, called hashtag GOP tax scam. And it was all centered on this is what companies were going to do with the tax cuts. And sure enough, in 2018, S&P 500 companies did over $800 billion of stock buybacks, which was a record at the time. They were using the lower tax rates and the repatriated profits, low rates from abroad, just to do lots of buybacks, pump up the stock prices. Is this one of these things like insider trading was legal until the 1930s? Is this well, one of these... in fact, there is a lot of insider trading goes on along it. Put it this way, the Security Exchange Commission in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was worried that this might be manipulation of the market. Companies were afraid to do too much of it because it wasn't clear what the rule was, but they could be prosecuted by the SEC. There was a rule passed under the radar under when Reagan got elected by the SEC, which basically we call a license to loot. It says you can do massive amounts of buybacks day after day after day. You have a safe harbor against being charged manipulation. It's actually on the books in a sense of the SEC that this could be manipulation. They just say we won't charge you manipulation. And that's been in place now for 40 years. Companies were doing all these large buybacks. There's nothing new. But it's escalated. It's become greater and greater. As far as the oil companies are concerned, ExxonMobil was by far the leader in doing buybacks of all companies, about $20 billion a year, $22 billion a year. Now it's Apple, which is up to $70, $80 billion a year. It's crazy. And that was when oil prices were high. Rex Tillerson was the CEO during that time. That's what he did when he was at ExxonMobil. He pumped up the stock price, laid off workers. That made him absolutely totally suitable to become the Secretary of State under Trump. He did not run an oil company. He ran a, ran a, ran a, a machine to try to use the profits of high prices just to pump up. Accusing the oil companies of being ripoff artists, yet he doesn't move on this, even though he said, as you said, that he should. This is something that he had stated not as vice president. This was not like a peripheral issue for him. I don't know if he had any other op-eds in the Wall Street Journal when he was vice president. I don't think so. this was a big issue. He was talking about this all the time, this financialization of companies and, and the need to reuse their profits to reinvest in new technology and higher wages for people, keep people employed. He understood that completely. And he talked about that during his campaign. But I think once he was in office, his advisors say, hey, let's just go easy on this. And you may know they came up with a stupid 1% tax on buybacks that the companies don't even really care about. What they need to do is ban them. In an industry like this, when we're getting price gouged, when the high prices are just going to pump up their stock prices, that's clear. He knows that. You can't just plead with them and say, oh, please don't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. He knows that. You have to come in and you have to say, okay, we're in an emergency situation. You cannot do stock buybacks while people are paying high prices at the pump. William Laconic is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts. From 2005 to 2015, ExxonMobil distributed $224 billion in buybacks on top of $101 billion in dividends. In the past quarter, Apple bought nearly $22 billion worth of its own stock. And you're listening to the news. I'm Paul DiRienzo in New York. Close to home, City Hall staffer Christopher Bow was fired after a secretly recorded video of him lambasting Mayor Eric Adams and mocking NYPD officers surfaced on Tuesday. The tapes were secretly made by the right-wing dirty tricksters known as Project Veritas. They caught up with Bow as he was relaxing over a drink in a local waterhole with his guard down. 
In one video, Baal lambast cops as having a cushy job. Being a cop is like the cushiest gig in the city. Like, you might get shot, but otherwise it's very good. He's like, the city is out of control. It is not safe. And I'm like, you're right. I just always joke that I'm like, New York's sort of like Hogwarts. Like, it's a lot of fun, great opportunities, and people die. In another video, Ba questions Adam's competency and refers to the mayor as corrupt. Has he made any, like, changes with that in, uh, in the city? Not as mayor. Like, he did a lot of stuff as a police captain. Um, he was one of the loudest voices, like, calling out various elements of the PD. Um, like, the police captain's union didn't endorse him in the primary. Why not? Because he, like, had been really aggressive against them. The mayor thinks he's got, like, ambition for running for president. And, like, this is it for you. Like, no, you can't. You are very corrupt. And, like, lots of other issues. How so? Um, like, he's worth two and a half million dollars and has rental properties. And, like, all he's ever done is be a cop and a civil servant. Adams said he didn't mind the attacks on him. He's got thick skin, but casting shade on the uniformed services was crossing the line. The first tape we saw, uh, Christopher made disparaging remarks about me. The team came to me and stated, oh, you know what, are we getting rid of him? And I said, no, you know, people crap on me every day. You gotta be thick skinned. This is what being a mayor is. Being a mayor means you're crapped on, you know? But when you have disparaging remarks about first responders, that's unacceptable. It's, it's not tolerated. My team didn't have to call me again. I said, that's not acceptable. I know what first responders went through. I cannot allow that to happen, and my team cannot be a part of that. So it wasn't about uh, giving him, we did give him a second chance. The first day, team came to me. I said, no, got to be thick-skinned in this business. But my first responders don't have to be thick-skinned, and I'm going to stand up for them. Bao's name made headlines over the summer when he was robbed at gunpoint and reportedly told the muggers, you don't want to do this. I work for the mayor. And Mayor Adams' controversial tent city on Randall's Island had only five residents after two days in operation, although it can house up to 500. Adams ordered the three giant white tents erected last month as tens of thousands of asylum seekers sent by red state governors flooded the city. It was moved to Randall's Island after the initial spot at Orchard Beach quickly flooded after heavy rains. The site came under criticism from some unhoused New Yorkers because of its plushy amenities, including computers, Xbox video games, and ping pong tables. The mayor says it's not about appearances. This is not about comparing those who need assistance and care from the city. We're not doing that. And we're not going to, uh, you speak to some that will look at who's there in the shelter on Randall's Island and say, well, why am I not on Randall's Island surrounded by water? There's always going to be reasons that people are going to feel as though someone else is getting something better than them. My job is to make sure everyone gets a place to sleep that's safe, three meals a day, and the support that they need so they can cycle out of being in the shelter. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Mayor Adams says the solution to the problem is in Washington, and he's in negotiations with the White House for help. And finally, NASA astronaut Nicole Anapu Mann, the first Native American woman in space, gave an interview from the International Space Station today as she begins a 150-day mission in orbit. She says the view is overwhelming. It is an incredible scene of color, 
of clouds and land, and it's difficult not to stay in the cupola all day and just see our planet Earth and how beautiful she is and how delicate and fragile she is against the blackest of black that I've ever seen, space in the background. I feel very proud to be on board the space station and certainly to represent Native Americans and indigenous people on board. The only personal thing uh, that I brought in the, along those lines is a dream catcher from uh, my mother, and that's something that I've always held dear as a child. Uh, I know it helped me through some uh, tough times as a child when um, I would have a hard time going back to sleep. Space exploration does a lot for us looking beyond low Earth orbit, but it also does a lot to benefit humans on Earth. I think it's part of our human nature to explore uh, to investigate, to conduct scientific research. Hopefully that will help us back on Earth and in our struggles with poverty and with the changing uh, world and atmosphere that we live in. The more that we can learn about our planet Earth, the better we can do to take care of her. Man is a member of the Wallachi of the Round Valley Indian tribes in California. She earned a mechanical engineering degree from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1999 and a master's degree from Stanford University in 2001. She's a colonel in the Marine Corps as well as a test pilot. And that's the news for Friday morning, October 21st, 2022. The news is written by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.